Well, today we are going to be continuing our study on the doctrine of God's covenant with man. And this Lord's Day, we're going to focus our time really diving into the covenant of grace. And really for the next remaining lessons, we got three lessons left, we're going to be focusing on the covenant of grace. Now, last Lord's Day, we took time discussing the covenant of redemption, that overarching covenant, if you remember. And if you recall, within the, gov the covenant of redemption, we defined it in this way. It was an agreement primarily between the Father and the Son made before the world was created, where the Father sets apart a people for whom Christ, who was sent by the Father, would be the head and redeemer of. Christ, in turn, would do all that was necessary to secure the redemption of that elect people. Now, we talked about how throughout the scriptures we can find the different elements as it pertains to the covenant of redemption. And I mentioned that understanding the covenant of redemption is necessary in order to understand the other covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, I'm not going to spend much time discussing the covenant of works, not because it's not an important covenant, but because... Um, in Jason's lesson, he actually spent an entire lesson talking about the covenant of works. So I would recommend you going to that to really get a full explanation as it pertains to the covenant of works. But just to give a real brief explanation, this covenant was the covenant that was sent, that was um, set between God and Adam, where God promises to Adam life if he obeys him by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he sinned, then the curse would be death to him and to his posterity. Now, we know what happened. Adam, being tempted by Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit, and as a result, plunged all of his, him and his posterity into the estate of sin and misery. Now, after Adam sinned in the garden, God immediately institutes another covenant with man. This time through a mediator, Jesus Christ. This is what we know as the covenant of grace. In this covenant, God promises salvation to those who place their faith in Jesus. Louis Burkhoff um, says in his systematic theology this. It is that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ. And the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. Now, the only thing that I would probably add to this definition is that the agreement is between the offended God, as he said, and the offending elect sinner through Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, if you look at our confession of faith in chapter 7, um, section 3, this is what the divines say. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So within this covenant of grace, you know, we have, just like with every covenant, covenant, those essential elements. In this case, the parties involved, the first essential element is God and the elect through Jesus Christ. 
then you have the promises. God will be our God and we will be his people and that we will have life in the fullest sense of the word, particularly eternal life. And then you have the stipulation of the covenant, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's important to note as it pertains to this covenant is that this is a covenant that was formed immediately after the fall. It was presented in seed form in the garden, and the formal establishment of it can be seen with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see what's known in theological terms as the Proto-Evangelium when we hear this. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, obviously he's talking to uh, to the serpent and of your offspring and her descendant and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel and then we see the formal establishment of this with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 2 3 where we hid this now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's this covenant of grace that we see being expanded throughout the rest of Scripture in the Abrahamic covenant, like we just saw, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and eventually in the new covenant. All of these covenants are best understood within the umbrella of the covenant of grace. And why I want to make this point is that as we start to discuss all these different covenants and administrations, there's going to be one unifying theme in all of them. Faith in Jesus Christ. This is what ties all of the covenants together. Faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the redemption of all the elect people of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The plan of salvation is the same. The substance is the same, Jesus Christ. The people of God also is the same. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And now the reason why I'm making such an emphasis on this point and this understanding is that this is not an understanding that is shared amongst all Bible-believing Christians. Over and against covenant theology, which is what we hold to, you have the dispensational approach shared by many Christians. But within, within dispensationalism, rather than there being one overarching covenant throughout all of Scripture, you have discontinuity from age to age. In the dispensational scheme, God deals with mankind differently from age to age. For example, in Dallas Theological Seminary's doctrinal statement in Article 5, Section 1, this is what they say. We believe that the dispensations are stewardships by which God administers his purpose on earth through man under varying responsibilities. We believe that the changes in the dispensational dealings of God with man depend on changed conditions or situations in which man is successively found with relation to God, and that these changes are the result of failures of man and the judgments of God. 
We believe that different administrative responsibilities of this character are manifest in the biblical record, that they span the entire history of mankind, and that each ends in the failure of man under their respective tests and in the ensuing judgment from God. We believe that three of these dispensations, or rules of life, are the subject of extended revelation in the scriptures. The dispensation of the Mosaic Law, the present dispensation of grace, and the future dispensation of the Millennial Kingdom. We believe that these are distinct and not to be intermingled or confused as they are chronologically successive. End quote. And then you have from a famous um, dispensationalist, C.I. Schofield, in his book, rightly dividing the word of truth, this. The scriptures divide time into seven unequal periods, usually called dispensations. Although these periods are also called ages and days, as in the day of the Lord, these periods are mocked off in scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind. Listen to this. A change in God's method of dealing with mankind or a portion of mankind in respect of the two questions of sin and of man's responsibility. Each of the dispensations may be regarded as a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, marking his utter failure in every dispensation. Five of these dispensations, or periods of time, have been fulfilled. We are living in the sixth, the dispensation of grace, as they would say, to probably towards its close. Mind you, this book was written close to 100 years ago. And have before us the seventh and last, the millennium. So, we can see a clear difference in dispensationalism. How God deals with mankind changes from age to age. How he dealt with Adam in the dispensation of conscience, as they said, was different from how he dealt with Abraham in the dispensation of um, promise. And then how he deals with Moses and the Jews were different in the dispensation of the law. And then even how he deals with us is different in the dispensation of grace. In dispensationalism, you know, man fails, God's test, and another dispensation ensues. In dispensationalism, though there may be some slight overlap, by and large, each dispensation is not to commingle with the previous or successive one. In dispensationalism, the church is seen as something that began during the dispensation of grace in Acts 2 and does not include Israel in the Old Testament. In this scheme, though adherents, though they would argue, to be fair, that salvation was always by grace through faith and rest upon the work of Christ, dispensationalists say that it was impossible for the Old Testament saints to have consciously placed their faith in Christ. J. Michael Lester, professor of Bible and theology at West Coast Bible College, in his book, Dispensationalism, Understanding the Basics, he writes this, no Old Testament saint was saved by faith in Christ alone, but all Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith. Well, there you go. Our confession of faith, and more importantly, the Bible does not affirm this at all. Going back to what our confession stated in, section, in chapter 7, section 3, listen. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him. 
that they may be saved. So the divines make no bones about it. It was faith in Christ that was required. Peter, while speaking to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, says this, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Peter says that the Old Testament prophets bore witness that salvation was through Christ, was through believing in Christ. So now being that there is a clear difference between the two systems and being that dispensationalism is prevalent amongst the church at large, I wanted to take the rest of this lesson to discuss the covenant of grace from the standpoint of its unifying theme from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In particular, the single fact that salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, are there differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, there are. And we're going to get into that in the, in the upcoming weeks. But it is important to understand the overarching unity within the two so that we don't fall into the error of dispensationalism. Now, there are a lot of different scriptures that I can point to, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on really two, you know, two points in particular. The first is the method of salvation. And the second is the fact of whether or not the saints of old could have known that they were to place their faith in the Messiah. So I first want to start by discussing the one, the singular method of salvation. Now, all of you may recall who were here, I guess, um, a few years ago that I preached through the book of Galatians. And if you remember, in that letter, Paul is writing to the church in the southern region of Galatia regarding Judaizers who crept into the church. And what were these Judaizers trying to do? With their infiltration, they were bringing in this understanding, this teaching, that along with faith in Christ, they also need to be circumcised and by extension, follow the whole ceremonial law. And Paul wrote this letter to remind them that a person is justified not by works of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, when laying out these arguments, Paul lays out some important points that speak to the one way of salvation. So I'm going to spend the bulk of my lesson now really diving into this. So if you have our Bibles, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Paul says this, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So we see in this passage, Paul acknowledging to them as he's giving his account of his encounter with um, him, he had with Peter, that though he was a Jew by birth, it was not the works of the law that saved him. Rather, it was faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to state that by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The law given to the Jews is not what justified them before God. Rather, 
Paul writes in verse 19, through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. And then in verse 21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The law was not what justified Paul. Not at all. It was faith in Christ. Now, after he makes this point, Paul points back to Abraham in chapter 3 to demonstrate how this was not just the case with them post-Christ ascension, but also before Christ's first coming. We read in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul saying this, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So who were the sons of Abraham? Those of faith. Those who shared the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise to him, and he was justified. Likewise, we who possess the same faith as Abraham will receive justification. That's his point. How we are saved never changed throughout biblical history. And Paul is showing, through the account of Abraham, the one way of salvation for all the people of God. Now, because he starts with Abraham, does that mean that before Abraham, the saints prior to him were saved differently? No, not at all. In Genesis 3.15, it was the promised seed of the woman that Adam, Eve, and all their posterity were to look to as their redeemer. Now, Paul continues to labor the point of the worthlessness of keeping the law to receive justification in verses 10 through 14. He says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, quoting from the Old Testament. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, again quoting from the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we see in this section, Paul notes that to try and perfectly keep the law, all of the law, is an endeavor, an endeavor excuse me, that will ultimately be futile. Our condition as a result of the fall makes that an impossibility. Those who seek to perfectly keep God's law are under a curse because if that's what they are seeking to be their road to justification, they will soon find out that it will be a road that leads them ultimately to hell. Not because the law is bad, but because they are bad. That is why Paul says that no one is justified before God by the law. That includes those in the Old Testament. He even quotes from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, to show that the righteous man even then lived by faith. From there, we see him continuing in verses 15 through 18 to tell us this. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. 
even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. Excuse me, um, referring to, oops, I lost my point. To your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if righteousness is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we see here in, the, in this passage, Paul is making it clear that the promise made to Abraham, and specifically Christ, the promised seed, does not change or get annulled. So if the law given to Moses that the Judaizers were trying to make them cling to, its purpose was never to add or set aside what God had already promised. It was never meant to be the means by which the Jews received their redemption. It was always supposed to be faith in Christ. So why was the law given? Well, Paul continues. He says in verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. So the law was given to expose the sinfulness of our own hearts. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taken an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Far from it. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So again, the law is good. We're the prey. We're the problem. We have to be shown our sin. Not only that, but the law was meant to point them to Christ. It was meant to be that tutor leading them to Christ. Seeing how incapable man is to save themselves, the law is meant to humble the prideful heart that thinks, well, I can do this on my own. And show them that the only hope of salvation is through Jesus Christ. It's like what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Luke 5, verse 31 to 32. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. 
The law shows the prideful person that you are sick. You need repentance. It is what exposes the corruptness of your heart. It shows the prideful person that they are in a dire position and their only hope, their only hope is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul concludes this chapter in verses 25 through 29 by saying this, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So Paul concludes this chapter by making clear that there is only one people of God those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. They are the ones who are one in Christ Jesus. Those who trust in Christ can look back, not to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but all the way back to Abraham and back to Adam, showing the unity of faith and the continuity as it pertains to justification. Now, if I had more time, there are many more passages that point to this continuity of faith between the Old Testament and New Testament. Romans chapter 11 immediately comes to my mind, thinking about the one root, although different branches. Hebrews chapter 11, when you see Abel in giving his sacrifice, that was um, sacrifice of faith, Abraham in the same um, passage as well. So there are many passages that I just don't have time to go into that demonstrate the continuity of faith. But I think this one session or section suffices to really emphasize the point that there was and is only one way of salvation for all the people of God for all time, faith in Jesus Christ alone. And as we look at the different administrations throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we cannot forget this fact. So in us looking at that and me showing how between both the Old Testament and New Testament, there is agreement and unity regarding the singular way of salvation. What I'd like to do now is briefly, because I'm over my time, highlight the way of salvation by a conscience faith in Christ was something that even the Old Testament saints held to. Let's first take a look at another part of Dallas Theological Seminary's doctrinal statement. They write this. We believe that it was historically impossible that they should have had as the conscious object of their faith, the incarnate crucified son, the Lamb of God. They're talking about Israel. And that it is evident that they did not comprehend, as we do, that the sacrifices depicted the person and work of Christ. We believe also that they did not understand the redemptive significance of the prophecies or types concerning the sufferings of Christ. Now, yes, we who lived after the revealing of Jesus Christ do have greater clarity regarding Christ as presented in the Old Testament than the Old Testament saints would have had. That goes without saying. You know, we have the full canon of Scripture in our possession, and we are no longer looking to borrow a phrase from 1 Corinthians 13 at a dimly lit mirror. However, the fact that we have greater clarity does not mean that the Old Testament saints had no clarity. 
This is the mistake that our dispensational friends make regarding the Jews in the Old Testament. They argue that there is no way that they could have known many of the passages talking about Christ in the Old Testament and that they were actually referring to Christ. But is this really the case? We'll briefly look at just a couple of passages that I would argue would demonstrate that's not the case at all. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. This is the prophecy of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. After John the Baptist is born and he's able to speak again, he says this. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and listen to this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we see in this passage, after John is born, Zacharias gives this prophecy, speaking to the redemption promised that is on the cusp of being fulfilled. He sees it and he points back to the promise made to Abraham. To, emphasize, to show the fact that God is faithful in keeping his covenantal promises. So clearly there had to have been some understanding in regards to what the promise was referring to. Then you have John chapter 8, verses 56, Jesus telling the Jews, your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. So here, Jesus speaking to the Jews tells them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, to see the day when the promised seed would come. So clearly Abraham, by the words of Jesus, knew that the Messiah was to come. And then we have finally in Acts chapter 15, verses 10 through 11. Since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test? by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter, in this passage, tells the other church leaders, hey, even our forefathers couldn't keep all of the law. They placed their faith in the Messiah, just like we did. Peter is indicating that what saved their fathers was not the meticulous keeping of the law, but them placing their faith in Jesus Christ. All of these passages tell us that the idea that the Old Testament saints could not have known enough about Jesus to place their faith in him is baseless. Implied in all of these passages is the knowledge about the Redeemer Jesus Christ. 
Now, again, does this mean that the knowledge of Jesus is as complete as we have it today? No. But these passages do suggest that when the Old Testament saints read passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that they certainly understood it way more than dispensationalists give them credit for. I love how Francis Turretin puts it in his Institutes of Elenchic Theology. He says, the faith of the fathers was not only believing that Christ was to come, but believing in Christ who was to come. Now, because this is meant to be a lesson, there's no way that I could have really given full justice to this topic about the unity of the covenant of grace. That being said, I do hope that in what we have gone over today, you're able to at least see that in God's plan of salvation, there was always only one way of salvation. There wasn't different tests that man failed and then God does another. There was always only one plan of salvation. There was plan A. There is no plan B, plan C, plan D. Since the fall of man in the garden, God promises salvation through a redeemer. Throughout the unfolding of history, the revelation of this redeemer becomes clearer and clearer. That's the point. It unfolds, it becomes even more clear. The redeemer, who was none other than Jesus Christ, it is he that we place our faith in for salvation, and it is he that the Old Testament saints place their faith in for salvation. Well, that concludes our lesson for today. Next Lord's Day, we're going to start to focus on how this one plan of salvation is differently administered between the Old and the New Covenants.